Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the Partly Political Broadcast. My name is Tiernan Duyeb, enemy of the people, and I've been wearing a poppy all week long because, well, I love heroin. Yum yum, tasty heroin. Uh, And this week, as I said last week, there is going to be no US election stuff at all on the podcast. Now, I know you're thinking that's quite weird because it's pretty imminent. Uh, You'll either be listening to this just before it happens or just after. But that's the problem. I'm not going to be able to be up to date uh, with the results. Uh, Things are either going to be shit for people in Iran um, or for people absolutely everywhere, depending on what happens. So I'm going to dwell on that next week. And of course, the issue then is what on earth else is there to talk about that's happened in the past week? Oh, oh yeah. Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! For a little moment this week, it felt almost like British democracy had delivered the goods. But then sadly it turned out that the idiots who were waiting for this urgent delivery didn't hear the bell going at the door because they were too busy punching themselves in the face to stop the shouting in their head. This week, High Court judges ruled that Parliament must vote on whether the UK can start the process of leaving the EU. And that's great, because it means that an unelected Prime Minister with an unelected Cabinet can't make major country-changing decisions without referring to elected MPs, as per the actual fucking law and democracy. The government can't use executive powers to override legislation. Only legislation as decided by Parliament can override legislation, uh, which was the evidence put forward by Gina Miller, the lead claimant in the case. However, it turns out that all of those who campaigned during the EU referendum lead-up for a more sovereign Parliament and greater British democracy without tampering from the EU are now super angry that the Parliament they elected will be making decisions by itself. Yes, it seems no one had a clue what a more sovereign country actually meant, and they were all probably just hoping that our pound coins would soon be made of gold so they'd at least dent when they plummeted. You'd think that the High Court judges had ruled that a stupidity epidemic should be triggered instead. The Daily Mail, the newspaper now with such echoes of fascism that it makes the Necronomicon look like a cheery children's book, declared that the three High Court judges who upheld British law to allow for British sovereignty are now enemies of the people because they are blocking Brexit, which they aren't. 
I'm guessing that if judges and British law are now an enemy of the people, it can only be time before the Daily Mail campaigns for the release of all imprisoned criminals in the UK, who are clearly martyrs of sovereignty, having been so mistreated by these people enemies. I mean, maybe some of them only murdered so that there's more room for others' voices to be heard. So look, let's be very clear. The court haven't blocked Brexit. They haven't ignored the will of the people as the referendum, the EU referendum, wasn't legally binding. In fact, the law has always stated that the government shouldn't be able to overturn laws or take away rights without agreement from Parliament. Executive action, which is what the government would be doing if they triggered Article 50 without asking nicely, is bound by the Constitution and cannot be used to change domestic law. And guess what? Invoking Article 50 would change domestic law because it will change fucking well everything. So, because the Referendum Act doesn't expressly say that the government could have made the decision without Parliament, which it could have done if David Cameron had bothered to change it instead of fucking a pig, then Article 50 can only be triggered by asking Parliament, and Parliament, as we all know, unless you're a massive idiot, has been elected by people to respect and invoke the will of the people. Got it? Good. Except loads of people just don't get it. And it's not just the Daily Mail, aka the serialised version of Mein Kampf, that's deliberately misleading the public. Several Conservative MPs have also stated that the judges are blocking the will of the people, including the man who appears to be the physical manifestation of troll comments, David Davis. No, not that one, the other even worse one. And Andrew Morrison, MP for South West Wiltshire, and whatever imaginary land lives in the depths of his damaged mind. And of course, goiter with a face Nigel Farage, who now says, after 20 years of arguing for parliamentary sovereignty, that he doesn't actually believe in parliamentary sovereignty, but instead of sovereignty of the people. Which just really sounds like he's still so very bitter that the British public much prefer to not elect him to being anything. Of course, what Nigel Farage means is sovereignty of the people as in popular sovereignty, which is where people elect the parliament, which is exactly what we've got. Proving yet again Farage is 99% racist mouth and 1% of face that looks like someone filled the carcass of a frog with dung balls. Nige has warned that this decision will lead to a disturbance in the streets, which I hope is just sensible people loudly telling him to fuck off whenever he walks around outside. But actually, it does seem that what Farage meant is that it'll be his disturbance in the streets, as the man who failed to get enough votes to become an MP is now insistent that he will lead a march of 100,000 people to the Supreme Court on the day that they rule on the Brexit decision. Yes, 100,000 people march aka Stop the Law, aka March of the Dinosaurs, aka Walk of Lame, aka The Wanker Trail, aka The Million Twat March. Because yes, if Farage can muster up that many people who aren't too old to walk and survive the cold, then they will all be worth 10 twats each. Meanwhile, other UKIPper Suzanne Evans is demanding a democratic control over judges. Somebody should really tell her about that parliament that exists. How about that? And if all these politicians don't really understand how sovereign British law works and don't like it, then maybe we should have some sort of referendum about giving some legal responsibility to the EU Parliament instead. What about that, guys? Secretary of State for Justice and Lord Chancellor Liz Truss took a long time to make a comment on the decision or the cowardly attacks on the legal system, which was probably because she was either too busy hoarding British cheeses or making prisons more unpleasant. It definitely wasn't because she was taking more time to come up with something really, really good to say, because she didn't. Instead, what Liz Truss did is she backed how important it is that the UK judiciary is independent, brilliant, but she didn't condemn any of the attacks, and instead she just said that the government would definitely be seeking to overturn the decision in the Supreme Court. 
Hilariously, if the Supreme Court also rules that the government must seek parliamentary approval, the government either have to accept or <laughs> take it to the European Court. Because while the UK steel industry is collapsing, our irony production is in fine form. Prime Minister Theresa May is clearly not a fan of anyone voting on anything, being completely unelected, uh, insisting she won't let Parliament have a say and will trigger Article 50 by spring next year, and also insisting there definitely won't be an early election. But many on all sides of the Commons aren't really happy with this, and Conservative MP for Sleaford and North Highcombe has quit being a Tory after irreconcilable differences, despite him also voting leave. This proves the long-suspected scientific theory that once a Conservative discovers morals, they instantly cease to be a Conservative. Philip says that the label of being a Conservative no longer fits him as they've lurched too far to the right, and there's now going to be a by-election in his constituency, which aforementioned UKIP vulture Suzanne Evans says that she'll be running for. Because yes, 2016 could actually get worse for some people. Meanwhile, Labour has seized this opportunity to prove that they are definitely government material in that they are also in complete disarray. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn says he wants more transparency on the government's plans for Brexit negotiation, despite his reluctance to answer any questions about an early general election to an ITV news reporter, instead saying that he was being harassed by them. We now have leaders of both political parties who seem to think that they're being attacked if asked any questions. God forbid either May or Corbyn do a mastermind, or they'll end up calling the police and suing for GBH after 30 seconds. Over the weekend, Labour have said that they won't block Article 50 and then that they will block it, and now that they won't block it again, but some MPs say they still will block it as their constituents voted to remain. Shadow Brexit Secretary Keir Starmer has now backed Jeremy Corbyn's comments saying that they just want more info on the Brexit plans and they will not frustrate the Brexit process. Because let's face it, the Brexit process is already so pent up and frustrated, any more pointless dry humping will just cause a mess. So what's likely is that Parliament will vote to trigger Article 50, but the more resistance there is, the more transparent the government will have to be on its plans. Or, you know, maybe the angry people will riot and overthrow and kill all the politicians and all the judges. Like the French Revolution. And suddenly, the UK will be more European than ever before, because you know what? Life's a bitch. Oh, and in mini-Brexit news, Walker's Crisps and Birdseye are among many brands who say prices will increase due to Brexit. So, if nothing else, Brexit may have the upside of reducing British obesity issues. But only because everyone will be starving to death. On Theresa May's visit to India these past few days, she was slammed by various business leaders, including the CEO of Cobra Beer, for her attitudes towards foreign students in the UK. And not just because decreasing the amount of foreign students decreases the amount of people that would buy Cobra Beer with a curry takeaway on a Friday night before heading to the union and puking during Abbott. And while Theresa May has said that she won't make the visa system for Indian nationals coming to Britain any more liberal, Indian officials have told her that she's going to need a ton of workers post-Brexit from somewhere. And lastly, R-shaped beanbag and Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson mentioned in Germany this week that the UK should be more like them, making me yet again worry that there are several Boris Johnsons in the world, each one completely unaware of what the others have said or done. And last week at the Spectator Awards, Johnson said that the government would make Brexit a titanic success. Well, personally, I hope that he's the guy from the film who fell off the sinking ship into the propeller blade underneath. Right. Phew. 
Now, that's over with, well, for this week anyway. Thank you tons and tons for listening to this week's show, you pod champs, new and old. Uh, as always, I'm very, very glad you're here. Uh, that's spelt both H-E-R-E and H-E-A-R, because wordplay gags don't work in audio, especially if they're really shit ones like that. Um, and I promise I'm not going to touch you this week with a new terrible Please Review My Show jingle, because last week's Please Review My Show terrible jingle meant that there are two spanking new reviews on the iTunes page, so thanks tons to those of you who did that. Uh, And let it be known, though, that that terrible, awful, ear-destroying jingle is saved and will be played again should any of those reviews dry up. Uh, Also, if you're one of the 12 people who listen to this podcast via the Podbean or the one person who listens to this on Stitcher... Firstly, very well done for going against the grain. I mean, I'm guessing that you're probably one of those cool people who only likes music that no one else does, and then when other people listen to it, they go, oh, that's good, and you instantly stop liking it. Uh, And you probably smoke roll-up vapes somehow. Um, Secondly... If you fancy reviewing on your platform, Stitcher or Podbean or other things as well, you know, so other sunglasses wearing, even in winter, against the grain listeners can get on the bandwagon of Parpol Bro, then please, please do. Thanks also to Steph Barros, who's added to the Patreon donators this week. Uh, I've written the script for the video, so it will appear on there very, very soon, and other stuff will. Uh, And if you wish to contribute to this weekly noise, then please, please, please head to patreon.com, Bro and drop me a few dollars or two, which, depending on the US election, may well be worth even less than a pound by the time you hear this. Terrible for America, but great for my pocket. Win! Lastly, if you, like me, were genuinely angry about the escalation of the tabloid press's fascistic tones over the last few weeks, nay months, nay years, then please do check out at StopFundingHate on Twitter or Facebook, who are pressuring companies not to advertise with the Express, Mail or The Sun, which would really, really hit those publications hard. I've also heard that it's very worth complaining about these things to the Independent Press Standards Organisation, but the chair of that is Paul Dacra, editor of the Daily Mail, and allegedly drinker of kitten blood. I didn't say that. Who said that? So it feels a little bit like you're just reporting Paul Dacra to himself. And unless he has a Gollum-esque personality, which, to be fair, could be evident from the cruelty he has and the want for wealth at the expense of others, then I can't really see Paul Dacra punishing himself for it. Right. So on this episode, I'm going to be looking at the horrific Battle of Orgreave and why the government won't reopen investigations into it. And also, I'm going to be talking to Emma McClure, who is a solicitor specialising in prison and public law, and she spoke to me about the current prison crisis. So yes, all cheery stuff, and then next week will be full-on US election outcome unless Trump wins and everything ever across the world is banned. But first... Michael Heseltine strangled his mum's dog. Michael Heseltine smothered his mother's hound. Michael Heseltine squeezed Thatcher's growler. Michael Heseltine chucked on Major's woofer. If you have a dog, you had better watch out. Michael Heseltine will find it and kill it. Michael Heseltine is after your dog. Michael Heseltine, Michael Heseltine, Michael Heseltine is after your dog. Prisons. Those lovely things you shine light through to make rainbows. Oh, sorry, not prisms. I mean, prisons. The places where, I mean, if you were to believe TV and film, they're not only where criminals get sent as punishment for crimes, but also where certain inmates have tattoos and the entire system on their body in order to help them escape, are a creative hub for prisoners like Crazy Eyes to write popular erotic sci-fi, and where Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery have to break into to get shit done. However, the reality is that due to underfunding and overcrowding, UK prisons are currently more like something Charles Dickens would have struggled to depict, with incidents of self-harm and drug abuse soaring, and the Chief Inspector of Prisons, Peter Clark, saying that standards have fallen to unacceptable levels. 
Just yesterday, at the time of recording this, there was a mass 200 prisoner riot at Her Majesty's Prison, Bedford, with police and special guards being called in to deal with the chaos. 50 to 60 prisoners have been removed, which does make you wonder where you go if you've caused trouble in prison. I'm guessing maybe for a continental breakfast with Nigel Farage, because honestly, I can't think of anything worse. But the riot in Bedford is despite reports in May saying that prisoners mentioned it was easier for them to get drugs and clothes or bedsheets in that prison. And 72 recommendations were given for HMP Bedford uh, in order for them to improve, with only 12 of those recommendations being met. And right while recording this, two prisoners have managed to escape from Pentonville Prison using no, not a tattoo of a map, I've already said that's nonsense, but instead diamond-tipped cutting equipment, which, yes, is almost even more implausible than the tattoo. But Jesus, when that sort of stuff is so easily available, just how difficult is it to get bedsheets? Justice Secretary Liz Truss has said that she will increase prison staffing, but it doesn't look like it's going to be anywhere near enough. And generally, MPs really don't seem to have a clue about what to do with it all, especially as helping prisoners isn't a vote-winning issue. Conservative MP and Prisons Minister Sam Gemeyer at Justice Questions last week seemed more concerned about drones that may smuggle drugs and weapons into prisons than the care of the people in it. And he suggested that eagles should be used by prisons in order to pluck these drones out of the sky. Yes, in Sam Gemeyer's head, the prison system would all be dandy if civil servants just used falconry. It's often said that Conservatives are out of touch, and yet there's Sam, all up to date with his episodes of Game of Thrones. So, look, this week I spoke to Emma McClure. Emma is a solicitor for prison and public law, and has a lot of experience working with prisoners and the prison system. She's also involved with the campaign work of the Young Legal Aid Lawyers, and I met her a few weeks ago at the QED Skeptics Conference in Manchester, and chatting to her then, discovered she very, very much knows all of her stuff. I spoke to Emma before Liz Truss's announcement on staffing increases, so Emma has emailed me a paragraph which I'll read at the end of the second section of our chat in order to update you on her thoughts on that. Here's Emma. So the Ministry of Justice uh, have just recently acknowledged that uh, staffing cuts in prisons are uh, a major factor in the rise of violence and suicide and self-harm. Um, how bad have staffing cuts in prisons been? And if it is a factor, what are the other reasons that have caused those things? I mean, if there are any at all. OK, well, um I mean, it was quite welcome to hear that they actually were accepting that that was an issue because um, for a long time they were blaming the rise in violence purely on um, NPS, which is new psychoactive substances, um, sort of synthetic cannabis that has sort of flooded the prison system, um, which we can, I can get on to. But in terms of um, staffing um, cuts, there have been about, about a third of prison staff have been lost in recent years due to austerity cuts and measures and things like that. And that has an absolutely enormous impact on prison because you're not, you're not just losing staff in terms of numbers, you're losing experience um, of people who are able to deal with issues in the prison. And on top of the fact you've got fewer staff, you've got more and more prisoners. Um, the prison population has been going up um, consistently for quite a long time. There's 80, 85,998 prisoners at the moment. Wow. And the prison system is supposed to be able to only hold 76,402 um, wow. So that's quite a lot. So, like the Pensonville prison, there was someone was murdered there not long ago. Um, Jamal Mahmood, twenty-one year old, he got killed in Pensonville prison. That prison's currently running at one hundred and forty-two percent of what it'd be. Um, the prison was designed in Victorian times to hold about nine hundred prisoners, and it's got over thirteen hundred in it now. Oh my um, god! And the Victorians thought it could only hold nine hundred. So that sort of shows you what the how, how big the problem is. Yeah. So how how are prisoners? Are they overcrowding cells, or how how do they fit the extra people in? 
well, they'll put more, they'll, they'll double up cells. So cells that were originally designed for one person will have two people in them um, and they'll use cells that aren't necessarily um, originally thought to be cells and things like that. They, they, they squeeze them in. I mean, the prisons, I mean, the overcrowding isn't universal. It's worse in different prisons and different places, but gen usually it's, it's um, having multiple cell occupancy and cells that aren't designed to hold that many people. Well, and I'm assuming that's not very healthy for the people that are living in them. No, of course, because obviously there is a, there'll be a toilet in there, but it's not entirely private. It's not a full cubicle, which can obviously be a little bit degrading for those people that are in there. Um, and it's not, and all, almost all prisoners have issues of some kind. You know, none of them are have sort of perfect lives. They have multiple different complex issues, and it, and it can be very difficult sometimes to have them all living in very close close quarters. And because there aren't enough staff at the moment, a lot of them are being what they would call banged up or locked up up to 23 hours a day in that room which you know i you or i wouldn't like to be locked in a room for 23 hours no. a day um so if you're doing that all the time that can be very very stressful well that's really horrific i mean uh, i mean it, it's something that was sort of seen in uh, a number of times in papers and things uh, where they keep saying that the uk prison system is at breaking point do you think that's the case then yeah no i think it absolutely is because uh, the 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 public don't get a full idea of how bad it is. You get occasional stories, and, and I'm thankful that there are. it's becoming more and more of an issue in, in the press, but unfortunately it's becoming an issue because you're getting all these big stories about the increase in suicides and the, and, the, and murders and, and people being harmed. But I, I mean, I hear about it every day. And at the moment, the prison should be, or at least I don't listen, that might be a political opinion, but prison should be mostly about rehabilitation. Almost all prisoners are going to be released at least theoretically, at some point back into society and, and society will want them to be reformed, to be you know safe to be released. But at the moment, because of the, the state of the system, they can't even get to the rehabilitation point because they're so unsafe and unstable. Rehabilitation can't take place properly. We need, we need to fix that bit for prisons to actually work. And, and is the... So, so if you go back to the staffing point, that's been has that been the main area where cuts have kind of hit hardest then in in prisons? I mean, it sounds it sounds obviously like that's uh, made a major difference uh, and is quite a ridiculous decision to have been made in the first place. But is that is that the main the main problem that legal aid cuts have caused to to prisons? Um, well, obviously the the, the staffing cuts isn't an issue; uh, hasn't been caused by legal aid. But legal aid cuts have caused a problem because until two thousand and thirteen. Um, Prisoners could get legal aid for for a, a variety of, of things, but the um, it was called the Legal Aid and the Legal Aid Sentencing and Punishment of Offenders Act in 2012 um, reduced what you can get legal aid for. So prisoners can only get legal aid for um, assistance with parole hearings where they have reached the the end of the minimum period they have to serve in prison. Um, so they can't get help moving, say, from a closed prison to an open prison to get rehabilitation moving forward right. um, and they can only get um, legal aid for discipline matters which are particularly serious and have gone to an outside judge where they can get extra time on their sentence um, that means that they can't get legal aid for sentence planning issues or issues they're having in relation to the way they're being treated in the prison system um, and so they they are told we are told that it's fine that the prison complaint system will deal with that adequately that you don't need to employ a lawyer to do that the prison complaint system will deal with those issues the problem with that being obviously that you, you're then having prisoners who are complaining to the prison 
about the way the prison are treating them. Right. Um, and in my experience, the responses to prison complaints are never very, um, never very helpful. And that can obviously lead to issues of sort of frustration and hopelessness if you can't fix a problem or you don't even know what the problem is. A lot of prisoners have mental health problems or difficulties and aren't able to articulate what the problem is. And it could be that a brief meeting with a lawyer would sort that out for them, but they, but there isn't any legal aid for those sorts of things. Sure. And so that can lead to frustration and issues. And a lot of people attribute that to the increase in violence and difficulties because prisoners aren't able to express themselves eventually. Sure. And, and well, it seems, so I got confused earlier. Obviously, the, the, the cuts in staff are cuts uh, to the Ministry of Justice and prisons. But then I presume the legal aid cuts are causing prisoners to complain about things in the prisons that are a result of the prison cuts you know, it's, it's, it's a circle, I suppose, of, of, uh, uh, of a funding crisis. Yeah, it's, it's a whole yeah. big mess. Like each, one, each one feeds the other and it's all, all happening at the same time and causing an, an, an absolute mess. And I mentioned psychoactive substances, MPS, before. Um, I wouldn't want to downplay that. That is a massive issue. That The prisons are all flooded with, with synthetic cannabis, which is very easy to obtain in the prison system. And I've seen, I've seen when I've been in a prison, I've seen what someone looks like when they're on it. And they are very difficult and dangerous to manage. But the, um, the reason that it's so prevalent and there's so much of it in the prison system is because there aren't enough staff to properly deal with it and to prevent contraband coming into the prison. Um, whereas if you had proper security measures and enough staff to deal with it, a lot less of it would come in. And the prison, um, the Ministry of Justice's response to this issue was to make NPS illegal, right? Um, which struck me as, as somewhat um, ridiculous yeah. because there were always drugs in prison. There have always been drugs in prison. And the idea of making something illegal would deter people in prison from doing something um, is a little bit absurd. What's, um, and, and in terms of, uh, because you, you specialise in in prison law yourself, uh, how have yeah. how how have legal aid cuts affected sort of the type of cases that you have to deal with, and and has it made sort of uh, defending clients harder? Has it what what's it done to the work that you do? So in terms of the work that I do, um, as I went through before, it's restricted very much what I can do, or at least what I can be paid to do. Um, for my my clients in terms of parole hearings and so the, the, the vast majority of the work I do is parole reviews for prisoners who um, are eligible to be released if the parole board think that they are safe to be released because um, that the test for being released is if your risk is manageable in the community um, so in terms of how it affects me there was also a second thing that happened in, in, in addition to the cuts which happened in 2013 a little bit before that prison legal aid was changed um, so that I receive only a fixed fee for the right. for the work that I do. So uh, the, the fee that I receive is essentially the same regardless of how complicated the case is, right. um, which can obviously be very difficult. Some cases can be very complicated, and I could go through several lots of cases where I'm essentially losing money. because. But in all, I still have an obligation to represent that client to the best of my ability. Um, so I have lots of cases where I'm essentially after a certain point, losing money, but I have to continue with the case. Um, and so in terms of how it affects the work, it means that I have to have quite a high, I have to I have to have a lot of clients in order to make money. I work for a company, it's a business, I still need to make profit. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, have um, complicated cases and things to deal with, which means I do have to work very long hours and things like that. Um, and can lead to high stress and things like that. Now, I say all of that, I don't want sympathy. It's a, it's a job I went into voluntarily. Sure. Um, but the, 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 com the combination of all of those things, the low fees, because the fees, the fees are also quite low, the low fees and the fact that they're fixed and the limited amount of areas where we can get paid um, means that, unfortunately, um, 
we have to have we have to run very high caseloads and perhaps can't give as as much time and effort to cases as as, as sometimes they, they deserve and that's a sad reality unfortunately yeah that is I mean, why do you think because i um I, I remember sort of back in 2010 i think it was ken clark when he became justice secretary he said this big thing about how he believed access to justice was the hallmark of a civilized society um but it it seems like the last six years of conservative government they've they've made access to justice harder and harder and harder why do you think they, they've attacked that area so much well I mean, when he said it was kind of like a meaningless phrase when he said he was supporting access to justice because at the same time he was he was cutting it. Although, I mean, access to justice is a very is sort of an amorphous phrase and can mean various different things. It doesn't necessarily mean access to lawyers or legal advice or the courts. It can be access to an ombudsman service or um, citizens' advice or you know just that the complaints procedures are clear and things like that. But the problem is that on top of um, cutting legal aid and things like that. They also just a general um, policy of austerity means that all these other things are also cut at the same time, and um, which means that it makes access to justice um, very difficult. And in terms of um, the sort of the conservative government's um, approach to the system, it just it ties into their sort of ideology of austerity, where saving money in and of itself is a good thing, um, regardless of whether or not you actually have positive outcomes because um they they sort of still say that you know they've they've, they've made cuts they've they've successfully cut the budgets of all of these departments the ministry of justice they will always say that in their um, press releases for things even when they're talking about um, the recent rise in violence the fact they're accepting that the cuts to prison staff are an issue they're in the same press release will also say but we've successfully cut the budget as if that in and of itself is a good thing and that's just a part of Tory austerity, austerity ideology, and um, that um, that means that they don't sort of stop to think about whether or not cutting is a good idea anyway. And, and do you think that because um, I, mean, I I found it quite hard to believe at the time, but I remember when Michael Gove was made Justice Secretary, uh, I saw quite. A th- Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you... Um people in 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 the legal uh legal world sort of saying that he'd done quite a good job which seemed to be mainly because he'd reversed 
lots of Chris Grayling's policies, um, yes. which is a ridiculous reason to be a good Justice Secretary because you've just mm. undone what the previous one did. Um, but, I mean, was that an advancement? And, and in comparison, has, has Liz Truss been doing an OK job? Or how, how are things as they stand? Yeah, so it was a sorry state of affairs to say that, Matt, yeah. Well, no, to be fair, and I, I was surprised myself when I, I heard, when I, when I felt this way, Michael Grove was an OK Justice Secretary. Right. Um, partly, yes, because he did reverse a lot of the things that Chris Grayling had tried to put through, which were terrible, um, like um, further cuts to criminal legal aid representation and banning books for prisoners and things like that. Um, but also because he was also making sort of positive noises about prison reform and what needed to be done to reform the prison system. Um, he was there were some things that I would perhaps disagree with in terms of um, he what he wanted. One of the things he wanted to do was give more control over budgets and rules to gov- individual prison governors, um, which again is a sort of a general Tory um, sort of inkling towards privatisation and choices and things like that. But he was at least making the right noises in terms of what the problems were and, and how to fix them. And he also made noises in relation to... Um, there's a type of prisoner called an IPP prisoner. IPP stands for Indeterminate Sentence for Public Protection, um, yeah. which is a kind of life sentence which they gave out between 2005 and 2012 until it was deemed to be um, unlawful. Um, and it was given out to people who had committed um, an offence on, on a, a set list of offences. And they were, they were generally serious offences, things like robbery, burglary, some kinds of assault, things like right. that. And if you committed... A, a second of those offences or the offence you committed was particularly serious, you could get a life sentence for that the same way that you would get one for murder. Right. Um, but the difference was that you would get very, you would get a very, very short, um, what's called a tariff, which is the minimum amount of time you had to serve. So when someone gets a, a life sentence for murder, you'll often hear that they got 20 years. And that means that you get, you have to live at least 20 years and then you're eligible for release if you're deemed to be safe to be released. Sure. With IPP prisoners, those that minimum period could be as little as six months, and it was normally like a couple of years or something like that. And initially, that sounds like a good idea. You know, lock them up as long as they're dangerous, and when they're when they're sort of quote fixed, we could let them out and they'll be fine. But the problem was that they gave those sentences out like sweets, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of them without any additional resources to help them deal with the issues that got them into prison in the first place so they could be safe to be released. Um, and that caused all, that's another, that's another pro- problem with overcrowding and people getting stuck in the prison system. And so that was deemed unlawful in 2012, but we still have this issue of thousands and thousands of these guys who are still in prison. For If I told you what they were in prison for, you'd be, you wouldn't believe they're still in prison 10, 11 years later. Right. Um, well, they so, are due to um, sort of lack of resources to rehabilitate them, essentially. And Michael Gove was making positive um, positive noises about that sort of thing. That's just one of the other issues he was making positive noises about. But then, of course, he has, he's been replaced by Liz Truss. Initially, she seemed quite positive. She was saying she was going to carry on with what Gove was doing, and that was fine. But then um, a couple of things happened. Obviously, Brexit has happened, which means the government is doing nothing really at the moment except trying to work out what to do with that, sure. um, firstly. And secondly, she's since sort of um, had a sort of a very lacklustre performance in front of the Justice Select Committee where she kind of said, actually, no, we're not going to do what Michael Gove said. Um, it's come out that she's previously, previously said she thinks prison needs to be tough, unpleasant and uncomfortable. Oh, um, forgetting that the prison sentence is the punishment. You don't go to prison to be punished. Um, 
and we haven't really heard anything else out of her since. Um, and apart from that, there will be some legislation at some point, which doesn't really take into account how critical the situation currently is in the prison system. And waiting for legislation at this point isn't is is just not good enough. That it's in crisis and, and something substantial needs to be done. She has offered, um, I think she said, fourteen million extra. Um, for new officers in um, after that, um, Jamal Mahmood was murdered in Pensonville. Right. But that is a drop in the ocean compared to how many staff have already been lost. And whilst you could recruit new staff, you're not going to get the experience back that you've lost. Um, so at the moment, I'm feeling a bit downhearted, to be honest, about the Justice Secretary. We'll be back with Emma in a minute. But first... The Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, said that there will be no inquiry into the Battle of Orgreave. An event that is not only known as the most violent day in the year-long miners' strike of 1984 to 1985, but also a possible catalyst for the Hillsborough tragedy, as many of the same South Yorkshire police were involved in both. Now, if you, like me, were just a wee lad at the age of four, or perhaps even a mere thought in your parents' eyes, or occupying a former life as a woodlouse or octopus in 1984, then you, like me, may not remember Orgreave even though cellopods have amazing memories, but I'm pretty sure they were just too busy being creepy in the sea. So, here is a small recap. By the 18th of June 1984, the miners had been on strike to prevent further colliery closures and protect their jobs, while Theresa May OS1 Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher refused to negotiate with them at all because she fed off hate. On this particular day, the National Union of Mine Workers gathered 5,000 picketeers from all over the country with the aim of blocking lorries driven by strike-breaking scabs from collecting coke from the mill at Scunthorpe. That's coke as in the fuel, not the drink or the drug, that either of which would have made this situation so much worse. The miners aimed just to use their numbers and mass to block the lorries and nothing more, but 6,000 police officers with riot gear and 42 mounted police officers and many police dogs all turned up. And that isn't really the sort of gear you bring if you're just going to engage in social fun bands, unless you're in a really extreme battle reenactment group. The police surrounded the protesters and Assistant Chief Constable Anthony Clement ordered a mounted charge against them, attacking the miners and injuring many. There followed a pause where many of the picketers left, the coke plants closed, and the lorries stopped, but the police stayed and waited until they massively outnumbered those who were left, even though they posed no threat. And reports say that many were playing football or even sunbathing. And despite this, there was another mounted charge chasing picketers into the streets of Orgrave Village, and again, many were injured. Following what QC Michael Mansfield called the most violent clash in British industrial history, 95 picketers were charged with riot, or, for a few, violent disorder. But all of the trials fell apart when evidence from the South Yorkshire Police was considered unreliable on account of quite a lot of their statements having almost exactly the same wording as each other. Which either means it was a frame-up or at some point in the late 70s the South Yorkshire Police were all assimilated by the Borg. The police agreed to pay out just under half a million in compensation and £100,000 in legal fees in an out-of-court settlement to 39 of the miners who'd been injured. But not a single police officer was ever disciplined for misconduct. So sure, I've got some bias, as to me that sounds a lot like a big old stitch-up where the police were used as a state tool to carry out legalised violence. The miners that were there then say that the police definitely brought the fight, and while there is evidence that the miners threw stones at the police, it's widely regarded that the cops used completely disproportionate force. You only have to look at some of the photos and the footage of the Orgreave battle to see that for yourself. Human rights group Liberty still refer to it by saying there was a riot, but it was a police riot. 
The Orgreave Truth and Justice campaign that was set up after the incident and fights for pretty much what it says on the tin. They've been campaigning for an inquiry into the event for ages. But in 2015, the Independent Police Complaints Commission said they wouldn't investigate it because, you know, too much time had passed. That's one of those stock excuses you use if you can't be asked or don't really want to do something, isn't it? You know, they may as well have said, oh, but it's so far away. Or, yeah, but it's cold outside and I already have my pyjamas on. Because this sort of excuse was used, despite there being new evidence emerging in 2012 that the police had coordinated their arrest statements and that South Yorkshire police had referred themselves for the inquiry in the first place. If police operated in the same way with criminals who hand themselves in, then we'd be in total trouble. Hi, I'm here because I killed a ton of people and here's the evidence. Oh, thanks, but we won't bother as too much time has now passed. On your way, son. Since then, through the success of the Hillsborough Inquiry in bringing justice to the families of the victims of that tragedy, more evidence of corruption in the South Yorkshire Police has come to light, and several now-retired police have given very, very damning accounts of officers who seem to be relishing the chance for a fight in Orgreave, attacking people when they were already down, and further accounts of signing statements that have been pre-prepared by officers who weren't involved. So when you hear all of that, surely an inquiry into the Battle of Orgreave is a no-brainer. It would take all of 10 minutes and then justice could be had for the campaigners and their families. But instead, Amber Rudd has said there's no sufficient basis for an inquiry as there were no deaths or wrongful convictions. Because according to the Conservative Party, unless someone dies, there's really no need to say sorry. And even then, it's only if anyone else saw it happen. Rudd has also said that policing has changed quite a lot in the last 30 years, so there would be no lessons to learn from an inquiry and therefore no benefit to the public. Even though sometimes just finding out that even our politicians can say sorry is a pretty big benefit for the country overall. Amber Rudd criticised Labour's Andy Burnham for trying to politicise her decision when he said the lack of inquiry was just a naked political act. But clearly he was right, and it is. Because if it turns out that it was just a mass police cover-up, then that is another dent in the ever-so-shiny grave of the godmother of neoliberalism, Margaret Thatcher. In fact, a former minister in Thatcher's cabinet said that they were afraid that an inquiry into Orgreave would be seen as a stick with which to beat the Thatcher government with. And considering how callous a statement that is with what happened at Orgreave, Amber Rudd's decision is a definite injustice. And now, back to Emma. What, uh, I'm guessing one of the main things that does need to be uh, fixed to make the prison service better would be then uh, an increase in staff, which is, is costs and money. But are there other things as well? I mean, is part of it that sentences are too long? I mean, I assume that's very difficult uh, to kind of decide and debate because it depends on the rehabilitation procedures and what things have been sentenced for. Um, and also, I guess, quite hard to get public backing on anything like that. Uh, what mm-hmm. sort of... What would be the yeah. things that, that that should be implemented as well as say more staff? Yeah, so a, a big a big part of the problem is that prisoners prison you don't get votes from for campaigning on behalf of prisoners because most people like to think that that, that situation is never going to affect them. The scary men are behind the big wall. We don't need to worry about it, and that's part of the problem because people don't want to engage with the issue um, and sort of think that if you've broken the law, you deserve to go to prison, and that's it. Um, when it's obviously not as straightforward as that. In terms of other things that would help, obviously, staff is a big issue. They need the first and most critical issue at the moment is they need enough staff to manage and keep the prisoners safe because they, whilst they are in prison, they are under the custody of the state. It's the state's responsibility to look after them, and they need to do that. Um, other things that need to be done in terms of sentences, 
this is a difficult one because obviously this is can get into sort of again can be quite political and obviously this your podcast has political yeah. in the title <laughs> I realise yeah. as I'm saying that it's fine be but, as political um, as you like yeah 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 so um in terms of prison prison it depends what we want prison to be for um I think prison should be for um rehabilitating people and protecting the public from people who are dangerous I think it's helpful to see prison as is quite as, as a quarantine um situation if you use that as an analogy where you keep people in custody when they are dangerous when they are still sort of quote have quote the disease of dangerousness and when they are safe to be released they should be and that means that quite a lot of people who are in prison at the moment I don't think necessarily should be because they're in prison for non-violent offenses um that aren't quote dangerous um, and that would help to massively reduce the prison population. And we can focus on the people who actually we need to sort of actually do work with to make sure that they are safe, because we do currently have a position where almost all of the people who are in prison have at least a theoretical release date. There's only about 50 or so who have whole life terms who aren't coming out. Right. Um, so we need to really sort of decide what our focus is. And if it's rehabilitation, then we need to... Um, get the prisons in a position where they are safe enough to actually have time to be rehabilitated rather than being locked up 23 hours a day when they can't do anything. Um, another thing is to have better communication for prisoners in terms of maintaining community links because it can be very difficult for them to maintain community links at the moment. Um, if you're locked up in your cell all the time, you've only got an hour to go and call somebody. Calls are expensive for prisoners to make. Um, the prison service are woefully behind in implementing video links to allow video communication long distance and things like that for example this um i have an issue with um all my my clients obviously i have to travel to see them if i'm going to see them face to face because they can't come to me obviously and we do try and use video link where possible and um, but the technology is is it's been so slow to be implemented and at the moment i'm running a 50 percent success rate for video links um the, the technology either doesn't work or the prisoners aren't brought to the visit because there aren't enough staff because there's an incident on the wing that day and right. um, so th there's a whole lot of things but I, and I won't go on too long because I, I could go wrong for the rest of the day I think, <laughs> various <laughs> issues but yeah I'll stop there for now yeah I mean it's it, it's a thing isn't it? I suppose if, if you're trapped in a place that's that's not helping you to see the outside world as as somewhere that you want to you want to go back to you know if, if it's not giving you any kind of out, outlook uh, then it, that's not going to help rehabilitate people in any way I guess is it yeah so, yeah. yeah, and I guess another thing that just occurred to me, yeah, just another thing that's occurred to me with that, for example, and the disconnect between what I think needs to happen and, and the public is, for example, say, um, the uh, the case in relation to prisoners voting, mm. um, which the UK lost in the European Convention, European Court of Human Rights, sorry, that at least some prisoners should be allowed to vote. And if you recall at the time, David Cameron said that the idea of prisoners voting made him physically sick. Um, and I think he's perhaps felt a bit unwell uh, more frequently since then, <laughs> um, if that was making him a lot of time. But um, that, I mean, being being able to, to vote, being able to engage in society, again, is something that c could help with the rehabilitation of offenders. Now, a lot, I mean, the thing is, the, one of the prison newspapers, I remember at the time when that case was going on, um, ran a pretend election um, it, within the prison service to see what would happen. And the thing is, I mean, the, the turnout was re was appalling, as it is, in the in the general population right. um but for, for the people that um are interested and engaged it's another avenue for them to sort of to help for rehabilitation but there's a disconnect there between what would be good for rehabilitation and getting people back into society and what the public feel clearly when if they become saying things like that so yeah it's i always find it interesting how uh i mean 
particularly when we look at Scandinavia for a lot of stuff, but often there's reviews of their prisons that are open, uh, you know, open uh, air ones and all sorts of different schemes. And they always say how successful they are. And yet we never seem to take any of yeah. those policies on board for here. Um, it was yeah. very strange. Yeah, Scandinavia. Yeah, Scandinavia are closing prisons. Their 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 population is reducing so much. They're closing and mothballing prisons because their prison population is going so low, and wow. and their reoffending rates are half of what ours are. That's incredible, and 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 that would save money in the long term as well. Uh, doing yes. that, incredible. And and what um just to touch on what you were saying earlier as well do, is uh I mean uh, and this is a big old uh, question I suppose, but could Brexit potentially affect? uh the current uh current legal system even further i mean i know a lot of it's dependent on staying whether or not we stay in the the european court or not but i'm guessing there'll be some yeah. uh some some legal terms on on prisons and prisoners that could affect us quite a lot yeah i mean it's not entirely clear at the moment um but well as as with everything to do with brexit because it doesn't yeah. look like anyone in the government actually thought about it before before doing it um but um in terms of Brexit itself, how it could affect, obviously, EU law governs lots of different things, including lots of things to do with the Ministry of Justice, um, which um, could have impact. So I'm not quite clear or familiar with exactly what they are at the moment. I know in relation to, say, private prisons, um, EU law governs a lot of stuff in relation to procure procurement and contracts for private prisons to deal with anti-corruption and making sure that they're fair deals, um, which could have an issue. But I mean, sure. to, to put my Brexit hat on for a second, that means also that they'd be quicker and there'd be less bureaucracy. Um, but I think private prisons are a bad idea in general, um, but I won't get on that particular high horse because we're talking okay. about Brexit. Um, in terms of how it's affecting the prison system, more generally, Brexit is taking up the government's time entirely at the moment. We are effectively not been governed for a few months because everyone's talk, trying to work out what on earth to do about Brexit. And um, so other issues like like prison reform that I was talking about with Liz Truss, nothing's happening because everyone's talk, everyone's dealing with this nightmare of Brexit at the moment. Um, the more, and then also obviously with issues with the economy is very uncertain at the moment. That could lead to a further dip in the economy and the need for more austerity cuts, which of course means more staff cuts, more resource cuts, which would exacerbate things even further. Um, but the main potential issue for, um, in terms of prison reform, is is not necessarily Brexit, but the European Convention on Human Rights, the European Court on Human Rights, which is a separate, completely separate entity, mm. um, which the, the papers and the press often forget. Um, they are completely separate entities. Membership of the European Convention or being a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights is completely separate to being a member of the EU. Um, and I think rem removing ourselves from that could have a massive impact. Um, and the, um, there is talk of that. Theresa May is a fan of doing that. Um, and I think a lot of um, people on the on the right generally are. Um, I've kind of been cheering myself up a little bit with sort of gallows humour in this regard because I've been sort of saying, well, well, after Brexit, um, so I voted Remain, but that's not already apparent. But I was like, after Brexit, um, so we're going to now leave the European Convention on Human Rights, and then we'll bring back the death penalty. Um, I noticed that Paul Mottel of UKIP was talking about having a referendum on that. Yeah, I um, saw that. Yeah. We'll bring back the death penalty after that, and then at least I um, can then do death penalty appeal work because um, at the moment that's something I would like to do, but I'd have to go abroad for that at the moment. But right. if, if we bring back the death penalty, I'll be able to do it in the UK. God, so I've been using Galaxy Human to cheer myself up. Yeah, um, that is a, that's a very bleak silver lining, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Uh, I uh, so I, I mean the I don't know of many uh, 
I, as, as I, I'm not uh, hugely au fait with, with the legal world, but I know that there are groups like uh, Justice Alliance who are, there are a group of lawyers and legal experts who are uh, opposed to all the cuts on legal aid. Um, are they, I mean, are they a decent group, Justice Alliance? Um, are there other ones or other websites and groups that people should check out if they're interested? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Justice Alliance are great. And there are lots of them um, um, there and about. I could also recommend the Justice Gap, which is a website that talks about um, issues since um, the cuts to legal aid in 2013, because, of course, we focused on prison. Um, in 2013, legal aid was taken away from lots of different areas, and we could have a whole other podcast about the different areas, but uh, I've sort of very much focused on prison today. Also, there are, um, there's a Howard League for Penal Reform, which is a very old charity to do with prison reform. Um, they're, um, them and the Prisoners Advice Service um, at the moment, they're campaigning to try and get back some of the uh, legal aid that was, was taken from prisoners um, back in 2013. There's also people like, there's a, there's a, a guy called Alex Cavendish on on. Um, on Twitter, um, I think, and he's got a blog. He's an ex-prisoner. He's a prisoner and an academic, and he blogs and, and reports on prison issues at the moment, and he's very good at keeping um, people up to date on what's going on um, in prisons. Like, I, I noticed today he's, he's tweeting about the fact there is an ongoing serious incident at HMP Birmingham right now um, as we're talking about it, and it's interesting to see the, the juxtaposition between what information that he's able to obtain and the information the Ministry of Justice put out, which is obviously the Ministry of Justice's press releases are something to behold sometimes in in terms of sort of their Kafkaesque um, and or nineteen eighty four nature of black is white and up is down, um, but mm. they're some of the things that I think people should uh, should keep an eye on. Excellent, and and uh, and in terms of I guess. Uh well, if if we don't bring the death penalty back here, hopefully we won't. And if Trump gets into the states, I guess you'll be heading over there to defend most of the population. Don't, don't even joke about that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gallows humour a little bit too far there, a little bit too far. Thanks very much to Emma for chatting with me. Uh, we spoke over a week and a half ago, which was before the Bedford prison riots and the prisoners escaping Pentonville, and of course before Liz Truss announced that she's going to be increasing staff in prisons. So I asked Emma about the latter, and she sent over a statement for me to read uh, on her thoughts about that. Uh, so let me read that out now. Emma says, The devil will be in the detail. Whilst a significant increase in staff should be welcomed, the number promised, which is around 2,500 in total, is not anywhere near the over 7,000 staff that would bring numbers to pre-2010 levels. There's also no detail on remuneration for these new officers. There's currently a massive issue with staff retention due to low pay, inadequate training and lack of managerial support, all things that happened under Chris Grayling. Most crucially, a recruitment drive will not fix the current crisis for some time. Record levels of assaults and deaths are happening now every day and something needs to be done urgently to lower the prison population. The proposal to have no fly zones doesn't strike me as helpful given that it is already illegal to convey items into prison this way. As we discussed, I am not a fan of the idea of just moving responsibility to prison governors. I fear this ignores cause and effect, simply transferring the responsibility for the government's own budget cuts and subsequent deaths onto the governors to deal with is simply scapegoating in disguise. Tough talk and cracking down on things doesn't solve problems with prisons. So thanks tons to Emma for that update. And we can see with Trust not even being able to condemn attacks on justice doing its job with Article 50, she obviously really doesn't have a clue how the penal system should run either. Perhaps to truly emulate justice, she's just blind to all of it. Anyway, Emma can be found on Twitter at E-M-M-E-M-M-E-M-M-A and it's also worth following Alex Cavendish at Prison UK for info and thoughts on it all from a former prisoner and author too.
Emma mentioned the Howard League for Penal Reform and Prisoners Advice Service, and they are currently crowdfunding for a challenge to the legal aid cuts for prison aid. So if you'd like to contribute towards justice, like some sort of amazing armchair superhero, then please head to www.crowdjustice.org forward slash case forward slash prisoners and give them a few quid if you can. As always, if you have anyone you'd like me to interview or subjects you'd like me to find someone to interview about, please, please, please do let me know. Uh, you can always drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, Parpolbro on the Facebook group, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or if you're Sam Gemeyer, just send an eagle to the usual address. This week, being concerned about asking what animals you thought other MPs might have strangled in regards to Michael Heseltine, or jinxing the US election by asking for your favourite type of apocalypse, the question of the week was all about SARS. No, not the popular Asian illness making everyone look like doctors in airports. SARS, as in the title used for Slavic monarchs and rulers, and now just dished out willy-nilly thanks to Mayor of London Sadiq Khan giving Amy LeMay the appointment of London's Night Tsar. Which is a tricky role to fulfil, as due to light pollution, you can't really see many SARS at night in the big city. So yes, probably quite a shit question, but I thought I'd ask you what other SARS should be appointed across the UK. Jacob Johansson said that Sir Alex Ferguson should be the Manchester. Um, that's, uh, he didn't put an accent on it, but I can only read it out like that. I do apologise to any Manchester listeners. Uh, James Cook uh, said that he'd like this guy to be the drug czar, and he sent me a picture of a man called Eli Good. Almost the song, not quite James, but points for trying. Uh, at Brendan Hope said there should be a person in charge of tea exports after Brexit called the Char Sar, uh, which I think would probably be Andrea Lidsom. She could also import some innovative jams. Uh, Alexa D. Wilson, uh, unlike this as a half effort, uh, just sent me something about Sar Sar Gabor needs work. It does, Alexa, but I like the try. Um, at Foxhill underscore Matt uh, sent me standing on the street corner shouting shit through a megaphone Sar. Uh, that's either going to be Galloway or Chumbawamba. Um, at Magic Darts said uh, they'd appoint one for road surface quality and call them a Tartsar. Uh, this is, I mean, what's happened here is rather than any sort of hilarious satire, we've gone down the road a very funny wordplay, uh, which I am very pleased with. Uh, at Long Skate Death uh, said that I think commerce needs one, the Bizsar, the Bizsar. It's meant to sound like bizarre. It's quite hard to say. Uh, much easier to read. Imagine it in your minds. Um, at Stephen C. Grant, who is a brilliant comedian in his own right, and you should all follow him, um, he sent by uh, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Um, I reckon that could be given to Kylie Minogue. Other suggestions? Welcome. Uh, Philip Alexander reckoned that Liam Gallagher could be the rock and roll star. Uh, and uh, at Fooled again says, uh, what about Stuart Rose as the Remain star, Lee Marvin as the Wandering star, and Boris Johnson with the star with the fringe on top? And uh, finally, my favourite, uh, Flufflogic's list of things. Uh, well, obviously, Sunderland needs a car star, and the drinking licence needs a bar star, and to keep child benefit down, a mart star. Marks and Spencers could hire a brassar, and the music industry needs Harmar Supersar. Wonderful, wonderful work. And hopefully all your plans will go through, and we'll all just be seeing SARS soon. Yes, that is the same joke for the millionth time, but there are a lot of SARS out there. No, I'm still not sorry. 
And that is the end of this week's show. Uh, next week, as I said before, is going to be uh, largely on the aftermath of the US shitstorm. Good luck, America. Uh, though I might throw out a little teeny mini episode if it is necessary before then. Uh, as always, if you want to get in touch, drop me a line at Bro on Twitter, the Bro group on Facebook, and partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. And do give us a nice review on iTunes, and drop me a quid at patreon.com forward slash Bro 2 and I'll be back in your ears next week, home slice. This week's show was brought to you by the numbers... Michael Hesseltine, Michael Hesseltine, Michael Hesseltine is after your dog. And the letter... Michael Hesseltine, Michael Hesseltine, Michael Hesseltine is after your dog. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.